everyone, welcome back to a new season of Freelance Creative Exchange. I'm your host, Jace. So over the years, we met many Singaporeans uh, creative who have actually hated overseas to hold their craft as well as to pursue their goal. In this overseas editions, we wanted to learn more about how um, you know our overseas counterpart Singaporeans, right, uh, who venture into the different countries, right, start up their career and build their career overseas. So today, I'm very happy to actually be on a call with Shuling. Hi, Shuling. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Shuling is actually based currently based in Chicago. So she is actually an award-winning documentary filmmaker, DP, as well as a location sound recordist. So he, she has a lot of passions um, with to social change. So I'm sure um, some of you all probably will have seen um, Shuling's most recent film called The Unteachable, right? Um, that has actually won the uh, Audience Award at the 2019 edition of the Singapore International Film Festival. So Shuling, really thank you for your time um, to talk to us. So what are some of the projects that you're working on at the moment? Well, um, this year has been a, an interesting year. I mean, so back in May, we had a premiere of um, a film that I got to work on called Becoming. Uh, it's actually available on Netflix in Singapore for you to watch. It's the Michelle Obama documentary. Um, and then there are two other documentaries uh, that are in post-production now that I um, was able to do location sound on quite often. One is about the Indigo Girls and the other is called True Memories and Other Falsehoods about how like our memories can be... Um, how our brains can think something happened when it didn't really happen. So how our memories can be contaminated by, uh, you know, false information. So that's quite fascinating uh, in my mind. Uh, and I'm also personally starting uh, to direct a new short documentary. It's actually a personal one about my family and what it's like to raise a child as a queer family. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds like you have a busy time. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm loving it. <laughs> I feel so fortunate to be able to do what I do for a living. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess, um, you know, that's why a lot of uh, the creative actually chose to be independent, like to be a freelancer, because, you know, you really, this is the, uh, it's really a, a blessing, I would say, to be able to do what you love, right, as a living. <laughs> so, how are the creative actually planning and running production in this new normal, other than? you know, taking the swipe test regularly, you know, is there any changes to like the flow of, you know, concept uh, or filmmaking or documentary filmmaking process and things like that? Yeah, I think earlier on, um, there was a bunch of productions where the producer and the director didn't even come on set. Like they did the interviewing through Zoom and they just sent the camera people and the sound people in um, to do the setup. So this was to minimize the number of people actually in the space. Um, and I think that in turn also resulted in like more responsibilities being placed on the people who were on set. Because, you know, um, if you really want to cut down the number of bodies, then you don't have the extra pair of hands of a PA um, or a grip or an assistant. Uh, so it, I guess... Uh, it's it's not only physical load, but like more mental load because you also have to be like aware of what you're doing and what you're touching um, and making sure that, you know, we, we schedule in extra time for disinfecting uh, equipment uh, before it goes on, before we move on to the next location and things like that. Yeah, it's been... 
yeah. So do you think this practice is actually going to continue even, you know, after post-COVID? I think so. I mean, so the downside of doing Zoom interviews is that, uh, I don't know, there's there's a an emotion or a feeling, some kind of a connection that happens when you are doing the interviews in person and you're face-to-face versus being on a screen. I think, uh, you know, even teachers and students can can attest to that if, if they take lessons uh, online. Something is lost, you know, when your, your view is just limited to this box around you. Um, but on the other hand, I think productions realize how much money they can save by not flying people uh, everywhere. <laughs> so I think people will have to make that call between how intimate um, do you need to get to your film participant uh, versus how quickly you need to have your turnaround time for your right. production. Yeah. Right. So I'm just curious, what made you decided to move to Chicago then to pursue your career? I came to Chicago originally in 2007 to... Uh, do my bachelor's in radio, television, film at Northwestern University. And originally, my plan was to stay for one year after graduation, you know, work a little bit, get some work experience, and then go back to Singapore, um, uh, I guess, to to keep working. But then uh, after I graduated, I got the opportunity to intern at Cartem Quinn Films, which is like a national treasure, I would describe it as. Um, it's a really well-established social issue documentary filmmaking company that's been around for about 55 years. Uh, most well-known for an Oscar-nominated film called Minding the Gap uh, and another one called Hoop Dreams. Um, so after interning, interning at Cartem Quinn, I was given the opportunity to associate produce a documentary film called In the Game. Um, and with feature-length docs, it takes several years to finish. And I didn't want to leave halfway. So um, I looked for ways to stay on. Uh, got a, Managed to get a visa to stay on until 2013 and managed to um, help even more <laughs> as an associate producer in that film. Uh, right. Yeah. So do you, do you actually um, have actually um, worked in Singapore in that sense? So I'm just wondering what's the um, opportunity like in Chicago, you know, um, that probably are not available in Singapore? Um, well, I, I would take a step back and look at the larger picture, right? If you look at the documentary film industry in Chicago, actually within the United States, it's a very robust ecosystem, all the way from like funders to, you know, labs and workshops and fellowships to support you through production to um, entities available for distribution so like places for you to you know like a pbs for you to broadcast uh your documentary and get it seen by audiences so i think the ecosystem um has been around for much longer and has become really well developed so um that's why there's like a, a so many documentaries that, that come out uh, of the us and within chicago itself there's car time quinn um and i think in singapore it's still uh, fairly young. Uh, I am, you know, very thankful to the original um, OGs, the the veterans uh, like Tan Pin Pin and Jasmine, uh, who've you know really paved the way um, for more filmmakers these days uh, to make 
more documentary films. I'm heartened to see um, people take an interest uh, in documentary filmmaking in Singapore as well. So I just hope to see it continue to grow like that. Yeah, actually, we do see a lot more interest, right? Um, both from the government perspective, right? Um, also from the fellow Singaporean perspective, right? Um, yeah, because like what you mentioned, you know, we have a very strong front runner or the pioneers, right? Like Tan Bing Bing, Jasmine, uh, you know, who who has been actually doing all the hard work, right? Uh, and making people know that hey, you know, look at Singapore, we do have you know our own creative, we do have uh, talent here as well. But what do you think um, Singapore can actually do? more right um you know to to actually what can we learn from chicago right um to actually further push the boundary here you know i won't even say in singapore but you know even from a region southeast asia perspective right how can we aspire to be like a documentary hub like chicago yeah one of the really great programs that came up i think within the last three years uh, has been dogs by the sea um it's and it's a regional pitching forum organized by Indox, which is in Indonesia. Um, uh, it's open to f documentary filmmakers from any of the 10 Southeast Asian countries, and they bring in decision makers. So people who are broadcasters, funders from all around the world um, to fly in and listen to the Southeast Asian filmmakers pitch their films for opportunities to get either funding or um, you know, even more opportunities to like pitch in in Europe or the US or in Australia. And I think more programs like that would be really, really great for Southeast Asian filmmakers. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think um, on top of that, I think what you mentioned just now was actually also very true to look at from the whole ecosystem perspective, right? So as long as there's more players coming, um, you know, and make it more vibrant, right? Um, then I guess uh, it actually evoke more activities and that's how we learn and grow, you know, from 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 there, right? So um, in your last, I would say, a uh, few years, right? Last 10 years at least, right? In terms of working on different documentaries, you know, whether it's in Chicago and the rest of the world, what would you define as some of your defining moments, right? Like the key milestones in your last 10 years of your career that bring you to where you are today? Hmm. Well, yeah, I guess when I look back at milestones, um, I would say my first, the first feature-length documentary that I got to work on was way back in... 2011, um, I had met a filmmaker through the Cartoon Queen internship. She had interned like the year before me. Uh, so this filmmaker named Rebecca Parrish, she was making a film called Radical Grace, following three activist nuns fighting for social justice across the country. And I thought it was a, a really cool story. And she um, asked if I would work on it with her. And, you know, she didn't have a lot of money. I, I didn't have a lot of money, but it sounded like a really good experience. So we took what little equipment we had and we pulled it together. And what we didn't have, we borrowed and we rented. Um, and yeah, I think one of the biggest um, highlights of that film was the two of us going to Rome 
um, to follow one of the nuns who was leading a pilgrimage there. And it happened to be at the same time that Pope Francis was elected. So we were in St. Peter's Square when everyone was staring at the little chimney, waiting for the white smoke to come out to indicate that they had chosen a new pope. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, it's good memories for sure and great experiences, um, you know, one I wouldn't trade for the world. And I guess following that experience, um, another defining experience would be my first feature-length documentary as a DP. Uh, and that was with um, a filmmaker named Asia Bundawi. She was making a film called The Feeling of Being Watched, which is about government surveillance of American Muslims. Um, and she had reached out to me. She found my name through another person I knew, from Kartram Quinn. Um, but she was looking for a female DP specifically because um, we were going to be filming in a community that's already very paranoid about having cameras around. And um, I think they wanted to be more sensitive and less, I guess, uh, intimidating. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think it worked out really well. The two of us um, uh, worked for like a year and a half documenting uh, what was going on in her community of Bridgeview in Illinois. And the film ended up, you know, uh, premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival and managed to uh, be broadcast on PBS. So it, it um, I think, opened a lot of doors uh, after that. Right. And then finally, um, I guess the last milestone experience would be getting to work on Becoming, which is the uh, Michelle Obama documentary. Um, yeah, I got a call out of nowhere one day asking if I was free on a certain date. And I was like, yes, I'm free on this date. And then the person said, well, before I can tell you anything about this project, I have to send you an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah. So having worked with so many um, documentary and, and from where you are, right, to you, uh, what are some of the challenges that you face as an Asian? Do you think that, uh, you, you know, you probably need to overcome more hurdle and obstacles when you are speaking to your subject who is of a different race. Um, you know, how, how do you, because it sounds like you have actually already merged into their culture and you are being treated as, you know, one of their own people in that sense or a trusted, I would say, right, a trusted uh, documentary filmmakers to go to. How do you actually manage to do that, right? Um, you know, going to foreign countries, you know, um, is there certain obstacles that you actually try very hard to overcome? I think I would say the first five years that I was here, I tried really hard to hide the fact that I was different and I tried to blend in with the mostly white uh, <laughs> rooms, uh, you know, in, in the documentary and film industry. But something magical happened in... I think sometime around 2015, 2016, where um, people of color, so minority groups started to organize, you know, after being tired of being sidelined by the mostly straight white male crowd, um, minority groups started to organize their own groups and support each other. Um, and it's really grown wonderfully right so one of the examples is 
Brown Girls Dog Mafia. Um, it's a face. It started as a Facebook group, and now they're you know I think over four thousand um, women of color in documentary film in that group, and every day there are people asking questions. Um, you know, any issues that they might be facing or if they get a call from a certain company, they can check with the group like, hey, has anyone worked with this group before? Are they legit? Is it a good, safe experience? Um, and then they organize, you know, um, teaching sessions for each other, right? So we there's like some kind of a knowledge exchange. Um, and I think through that really supportive environment, uh, we've it's like really helped raise the profile of the community as a whole. Um, so yeah, where I originally started as someone who would try to hide my Asianness, now it's it's part of the first things I say about myself. You know, I am an immigrant. I am an a Singaporean woman. Um, yeah, and I think I see it as a strength now. You know, it's part of my uniqueness. Right. So, what are your future plans from now? Well, I'd say in the next. Five years. I hope to finish two more documentaries um, as a director, and maybe four more as DP or sound recordist. Uh, and I also recognize that, you know, over the last ten years, there have been a lot of really generous and kind filmmakers who've um, guided me and lent me their their ears and their equipment and their time. Uh, and I I definitely want to pay it forward. So. Um, I'm committed to continuing to mentor uh, more emerging filmmakers so that others can also, you know, find their, their what I call the ikigai, right? So the, the combination of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can be paid to do. Right. Wow. I'm sure a lot of the young um, people will actually jump at this opportunity. So talking, um, so so about we speak so much about your time in Chicago and your career. So now I want to bring it back to actually your documentary, which is Unteachable. So we know that um, you know this documentary actually took you seven years, right, to finally complete it. Do you actually envisage you know this this documentary will take this long? And what kept you going, right? I mean, seven years is a long time, right? What kept you continuously, you know? complete or what what compel you to actually complete this documentary yeah when i first started making the documentary in 2012 i thought i would be done in two years i really did it all started when i had lunch with my friend macy who is the teacher protagonist in the film and she told me about her adventures uh, studying the education systems in multiple countries around the world and then she said, you know, I found this one method in Mexico and it really transformed the, the schools there. And I want to take it back to Singapore um, to try it, you know, with the normal technical stream students. Uh, and when I first heard this, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I really want to document it. So that's why I thought it would take two years because I thought that Macy would take it to a school, try it for two years, and then we find out at the end whether it works or not, right, at the end. But after we started rolling, um, you know, as with most documentaries, what you plan isn't what happens. <laughs> and we also realized that if we didn't want to use grades as a way to show progress, and we wanted to take the more intangible things, like do they become more confident, um, then we need more time to pass. So 
we started filming with Macy's first batch of students when they were sec one. And then halfway through, we realized we cannot stop at sec two. We had to follow until they graduated at sec four. So we, we eventually, you know, followed um, our main character, Damien, until he graduated at sec four. And then because our, our documentary film, or basically my producer and I, Lisa Te, and I met at Nian when we were studying, we were, we were friends and I, I, I I was like, hey, help me produce this documentary. And she was like, yeah. Um, and neither of us are wealthy or super well connected. So uh, we worked on nights and weekends a lot, you know, on top of our day jobs uh, to get this film made. And that's why it took so long because we were working on it part time. Um, after we finished filming, we did a few pitching events. Uh, we got into this thing called Good Pitch Southeast Asia, which we're so lucky to be connected to the Jia Foundation as a result. And they helped us, um, you know, refine our pitch, introduced us to a couple of foundations and helped us organize some fundraising dinners. So with a little bit of money that we were able to raise, we could hire an editor to go through our 120 hours of footage and cut it down to a 77 minute film over the course of a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly not easy, um, you know, to, to keep going. But it's really, what, what would you say is really the contributing factors that, that compile you to actually, you know, to complete this whole journey, right? Is there at any point in time do you feel that, like, oh, it's just so difficult, it's just so long, you know? Or in fact, you know, your day job, right, could actually take precedence over, you know, what you do, you know, after office hours, you know, working on this at your free time. So is there any moment in that seven years that you really feel like giving up? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> you go through these like roller coasters, you know, this is awesome. Oh, this is terrible. This is awesome. This oh, is a struggle. Um, but, you know, when, when Lisa and I met after work each night, we realized that we were coming from jobs that were we felt were like kind of draining on our energy. And then when we were working on the film, we actually felt really energized. And because we were doing something that we really believed in. Um, and also we felt responsible to the, the film participants who so generously allowed us into their lives, into their space for so many years. You know, we really needed to get their stories told. So we were committed to like getting it finished no matter what, you know, even if, in the end, we didn't raise any money. Like we would just get it done on our own somehow. It would take a longer time, but we'll get it done. Yeah. So how has the documentary Unteachable been received so far? Um, it's been it's been good. So we had a great world premiere at the Singapore International Film Festival last year. Uh, and it was so beautiful to be able to sit in a theater and experience the film with an audience, because then you you hear exactly it. And all the moments in the film where it resonates with them and they're laughing and they're crying and then we get emails from people saying like, I'm bringing my kids. I mean, I'm going to watch it a second time. You know? <laughs> Things like that. Uh, so we're, we're really heartened by the, the initial response. And um, because we were taking, we still are taking um, private screening requests, we had a number of institutions and community groups reach out to us to say, hey, we'd love to screen this to you know, our, our group, um, can we get that organized? And so we were doing a number of those screenings until COVID hit and then all that kind of ground to a halt. Um, so we, 
I mean, I think the the experience of watching a, a film online is very different. We did try, you know, I think a four day online screening um, through the projector. Uh, I think back in March or May, something like that. Um, as during the circuit breaker, yeah, and you know, we did a Q and A, but it was, it felt very one directional, right? So we were doing Q and A's, but like we were not hearing back from the audience, uh, not experiencing it in the same room. So I'm really looking forward to when things open up again and we continue to do more community screenings because I think there's real value in that experience. Definitely, yeah. Um, so is there any difference you see in your audiences between those in Singapore as well as the international audience? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, you know, the screenings we've done in the US have been virtual. <laughs> so similar experience, I'm like not getting the feedback that I'm, I really want. Uh, but, you know, based off of like what we're hearing from the festival organizers and what we're reading about in the press that, that has been written in the US, um, it seems to be pretty positive they're, they're relating to it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just wondering, um, you know, are your international audience able to understand the context? Because Untouchable talks uh, very specifically about Singapore context, right? And and also really based on our education systems. So, you know, for a documentary like this, that is so, um, I would say, localized in a way, right? Um, you know, are your international audience able to understand the context, right, of what goes behind it and also relate, you know, to the key, I would say, message that you actually want to bring out in the documentary? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, right from the get-go, as we were editing the film, we knew we wanted it to be able to translate beyond Singapore borders. And that's why you will see in the film several title cards explaining our our acronyms like PSLE, ITE, N-Level. You know, it was to make sure that everyone could kind of get a sense of what it was. Um, we also made sure to, to put the equivalent. So like when we say, um, you know, Damien is a sec two boy, we also put in parentheses like, grade eight mm -hmm. right or eighth grade student so um so that it would translate and we made sure in the edit to um send our work in progress cuts to several uh i guess editing consultants here you know people who have zero experience of of the singapore education system to make sure that um any confusing points or any gaps were were filled uh, yeah, that, that's part of the editing process. We had we sent it out to multiple people and had lots of test screenings, um, even with audiences in the US to to uh, iron out those kinks. Right. Yeah. So so I guess this is actually one of the key points, right? Because um, a lot of the filmmakers, right, always think that oh, you know, I want to actually you know create content for international audiences. Uh, therefore, I cannot touch on things that's too specific in Singapore. I think in Untouchable, you have actually demonstrated there's actually a way that you can actually balance it, right? Just like Koreans, you know, uh, K-pop is so successful, but a lot of time it's actually on their culture, right? But it's also international received. So I think um, what you have done, right, um, is is very sensible, right, um, in terms of translating our local culture. So um, there's also a school of thought, right, that um, Singapore filmmakers, um, of course, you know, everyone want to make, you know, stories with more international appeal for box office successes, you know, instead of, you know, just focus on Singapore as a market. So what are some of your thoughts, um, you know, on this, like how Singaporean freelance, or rather I would say Singaporean documentary filmmakers can actually, you know, um, create content 
right, for more international appeals? Yeah, um, so I think if you want to make a film that can translate universally, where your your film, it doesn't matter where it is set and it doesn't matter where the people are from, then you have to touch on things that we can all relate to regardless of where you are located. So things like family, like love, or life milestones that all of us can relate to, life and death, or even emotions that are experienced on screen, you know, it, like pain, if someone's crying on screen or if someone is experiencing really intense joy, I think that really translates across borders. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, the, the school of thought around like making, making stories for, for box office success. I think we have to expand on that thinking because box office success is not the goal of every filmmaker, right? So sometimes filmmakers do put their time and effort into making films because they want to make change or maybe they want to touch some lives. Or maybe they just want to, I don't know, create new opportunities for themselves. You know, after making this film, it will lead to better opportunities on their next film. Maybe they're doing it for for awards. So it's not necessarily all about about the money. <laughs> yeah. Especially for documentary, right? So how do you go about selecting the subjects for your documentaries? As, are you talking about the people or like, you know, what my documentary is about? what your documentary will be about. Like, so how do you decide which mm. documentary you want to make next? Mm. Yeah, I think because documentary film is such a um, personal process and one that takes many, many years of investment and also it is not a money-making thing. So you really need to be super interested and dedicated to the topic. So it needs to be something that you're passionate about. Um, and secondly, uh, this is a big conversation happening in the documentary filmmaking industry now, which is, have you earned the authority to tell this story, right? So because the filmmaker wields a lot of power and because the history of documentary filmmaking has been so rooted in the straight white male gaze of, of communities that he does not belong to, there's a new school of thought where um, filmmakers should be from the communities that they are making films about so that it, uh, it is a more accurate and truthful and authentic portrayal um, of the, the people in the film. And you'll then be able to, I'd say, relate. Uh, you know, you can, you'll be able to spot all the, the red flags and make sure that you, you don't... Um, make an extractive film where you just go in and and take 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 and then leave leave the community with nothing yeah so that's that's what i'm considering when i'm thinking about my next film it's like you know uh how can the community benefit from the film that i'm making am i qualified to tell the story if i'm not can i put together a team that is made up of people who are from the that community itself as well um, to make sure that it is a ethical process. And we actually noticed that a lot of your um, stories tend to move or tends to guilt towards more the social change, social impact, um, I would say, genre or area. Is that a conscious decision to do it that way? Or, um, you know, it just happened that 
you know, your stories are all geared towards this area. Yeah, I think, you know, right from the get-go when I was sitting in my college class, I thought I was going into radio at first. And then this filmmaker came in and screened her film about the stem cell debate. And it dawned upon me that it's possible to use my filmmaking skills to do good at the same time. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I want to do social issue documentary films. <laughs> so I, I contacted this filmmaker who was speaking in my class. Uh, and she was the one who pointed me towards Kartemko and Films. And she was the one whose film I, I ended up associate producing after I graduated. So um, it's, it's been a nice full circle. And it, I think, you know, it helps you get up in the morning. It gives you meaning to your work. It helps you stay sustainable and keeps you energized uh, because it is a very difficult <laughs> thing to do. Um, yeah, a lot of filmmakers, after they finish a film, they're like, I'm never doing this again. And then after a while, they're like, oh, that's a really great story. Let's let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lot of time we also hear from Singapore filmmakers, right, who, you know, feel that because, you know, as Singapore, we are a very young country, so we don't have the depth of cultures and things like that. Do you think that is actually part of the reason that actually prohibit, you know, um, Singaporean filmmakers from, um, you know, doing, I would say, a uh, 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 big budget documentary in that sense? I don't think it's a, a young nation thing. I don't think it's a lack of culture. I think there are plenty of stories in Singapore. Um, it's just really difficult to get it done because most of the funding comes from one place. And it's not exactly... You don't exactly have free reign to choose exactly what topics you want to do it on you're kind of restricted by the funder what you can talk about in your film so until we can build a stronger ecosystem where films documentary films are supported not just by government but by private entities by the community um and even you know regional and, and international support with co-productions as well um yeah, I think there's there's a lot of growing that needs to happen to make it something that is possible to do without making yourself homeless. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So what advice do you have for Singapore creative, right? Um, you know, who want to actually, you know, move overseas for work. Do you have any advice for aspiring, uh, uh, you know, Singapore creative who, who is looking at expanding you know, they are, they are based overseas? Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to build up your credibility in a certain community. Uh, so I'd say make sure you have some emergency funds saved up to tide you over this period where you, I mean, for the first four years after graduating, I went to as many networking events as I could, um, you know, joined as many labs and fellowships as I could. Um, and when my freelance income didn't fully support me, I did have a part-time job three days a week so that I could spend the other four days a week doing my building up my freelance career. Um, and then, you know, after uh, many years of doing the Craigslist ads and <laughs> applying to everything that I saw, um, yeah, slowly but surely, 
I stopped needing to look for work, which is nice. Yeah. 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 I guess there's always this um period that you need to actually really fully immerse yourself into what you are doing in order to reap the reward, right? So, you know, it's not like an instant gratification where you just move there and then you suddenly, you know, people will come looking for you and, and understand what you are doing. Yeah, that's yeah, great. It is a highly network, networking-based yeah. industry. Yeah, especially for creative, right? Especially for filmmaking, right? Because I think people need to trust you to hand the I would say the, the job to you because you know it's after all a teamwork right you need to be able to know that everybody is actually you know doing their parts and will do their parts right and in, in order to make a beautiful film yeah yeah Great. yeah you're right and I think in the freelance world also you're only as good as your last job like every <laughs> job is an audition because if you mess up once, <laughs> you might not get on this project again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ling. Thank you for your time. Um, you know, sharing your expertise and advice. You know, uh, that's that's really really great. And I I guess our audience learned a lot from you as well. So thank you to our audience as well for listening to our show, the Freelance Creative Exchange. You can actually catch this episode, um, you know, on our Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. Um, check out. Our website right and join our creative Awards community on the facebook instagram and also tiktok right um you know so so in the meantime keep safe right and we'll chat soon thank you shuling thank you for your time thanks for having me